A little history first. In May 1877, the opera singer Elisaveta Lavroskaya spoke to Tchaikovsky about creating an opera based on the plot of Pushkin's verse novel, Eugene Onyegin. Um, in its original form, it was indeed a novel in verse and rather different from what eventually will arrive on stage. It is, of course, a classic of Russian literature and its protagonist has served as the model for a number of a particularly Russian literary hero, the so-called superfluous man, the outsider figure. Um, the novel was published in serial form between 1825 and 1832, and the first complete edition was published by Pushkin in 1833. The currently accepted version of the text, for those who care, is 1837. Back to Tchaikovsky. According to his memoirs, at first the idea of turning what was already a kind of classic of Russian literature into an opera seemed utterly and completely mad. However, he gradually got entranced by the idea, positively excited if you read his correspondence in the programme for tonight, and eventually created the scenario for what will eventually become the opera in one single night, beginning to write the music almost immediately. He wrote the libretto with his fellow composer and friend, Shilovsky, uh, and the two of them endeavoured to preserve as much as possible of Pushkin's original verse 4. Tchaikovsky chose scenes that involved the emotional world and fortunes of the principal characters, calling the opera, which is often given pause for thought for people, not so much an opera as lyrical scenes. To an extent, he abandons Pushkin's narr narrator uh, and shifts the emphasis onto Tatiana as the centre of the piece. The opera is episodic, there's no continuous story, just selected highlights in the life of Onyegin and Tatiana and Tatiana's sister Olga and uh, Onyegin's friend Lensky. Since the original story was well known to all his Russian audiences, Tchaikovsky knew that they would easily fill in any of the details he might have admitted. The opera was finished by January 1878. We're joined this evening by Martin Fitzpatrick, who's Head of Music here at English National Opera, and also who's the Assistant Conductor on tonight's production, and the tenor Jonathan Stoughton, who is covering the role of Lensky, and they're going to perform music to of Lensky's arias. Also with us this evening are Tom Pye, who designed this new production, and Deborah Warner, the director of this new Eugène, Eugène Onyegin. Would you please welcome Deborah Warner? Deborah, is this a, an opera or lyrical scenes that you've wanted to direct a long time? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't. Um, funnily enough, I'd never, it was never on my list. And um, I think I've had an, a great anxiety about the core romantic operatic rep, really. Um, and I haven't particularly thought it was for me. But uh, on the other hand, when I was asked by John Berry three years ago, I, uh, I knew I had to say yes. So there is that kind of balance. I think things that you're slightly fearful of, you don't always go in pursuit of. When you went to have a look at it and thought about it, having said yes, what, what, what was it that really appealed? What did you find that caught your, your ear and eye? Well, I think anybody listening to it begins to fall in love. I mean, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's dangerously corrupting very early on, isn't it? Mm. And, um, so I was seduced um, in that respect, and I suppose I hoped that it would allow me to 
to dig deep and find um, find a, a, a enough detail. I mean, I suppose when I say I was fearful of this core romantic rep, it's a little bit to do with being afraid that there may be inbuilt shortcuts in there and that somewhere it's not the greatest piece of drama. I mean, I'm embarrassed to be saying this to you now because, of course, eight weeks later rehearsal, you, you find out what you find out. And I have found out that it is the greatest piece of drama. But I didn't know that, and I'd only seen proof of that once. I mean, I'd seen quite a few productions which I'd enjoyed, but I, I hadn't felt was structured um, in as deep a theatrical and dramatic way as I'd hoped, except for one, which was the Bolshoi production that came last year to the Royal Opera House uh, with this wonderful production by a Russian director called Chernikov. And I had really seen detail there. And in a way, whilst that was intimidating to see a marvellous production seconds before having to make <laughs> one's own, um, it was also, also galvanising, actually, and um, inspiring. And that made me think that there was Chekhov, I guess, really, in, in, the, in the heart of this. And the confirmation of that was, was going back to the Pushkin. Because when you start reading that poem, um, and I finally found a translation that I could enjoy reading, and I really enjoyed reading it. It is a textbook of detail. And then you realise to what degree Tchaikovsky was, I, I think, it, of course, in massive relation to it, but, but actually enjoying giving the possibility of each of those tiny, tiny, quirky, mad little bits of detail, as rich as a, as a Chekhovian short story. And that, that was pure, pure pleasure, really. Is the detail that you found, the detail that, that makes it both a, as a poem and indeed as a, an opera remarkable, social detail, a sense of social nicety, social gradation, or is it the extraordinary attention to emotional detail? I think it's emotional detail. I mean, I, I, think, I, think, I think why this is great, why this is thrilling in, in, in a theatre, is if that is tapped and that is really plumbed deeply, um, what we as an audience have is the most really as, as, astonishing um, evening which is which is experienced viscerally actually emotionally i mean he he risks allowing us to go into every single place that we all as humans think we want to get to might be fearful that we do might not want our life to be full of tragedy and grief but somewhere long to go to those deep and dark places and i think an evening that is fully realised of this opera will 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 give you that. So it is it is all about emotional detail and um, and it can it, it, it I, look I'm dazzled in a way by it. It's not what I it's not what I expected. I thought it would I thought one would get halfway there and be delighted with where one got, but to actually find to find it that rich and that dangerous, I guess, is is, is very exciting. To what extent does does Tchaikovsky and his librettists shift? as it were, the centre of gravity away from Onyegin, the mm. great superfluous outsider figure in Russian literature, to Tatiana. Is it really actually not um, Onyegin, but Tatiana who ought to have the title? Well, I think they should both have the title, really. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's, um, it's Paolo and Francesca. I think it's, I think it's Onyegin and Tatiana. I, I, I can see why he didn't call it that. <laughs> I think the same way as you know, Shakespeare wouldn't have wanted it to be Hamlet and Gertrude later. You know, it's too famous. It's too famous a piece for him to have messed with the title. But, um, but going back to the Pushkin again, it, it is remarkable, despite the fact that the narrator is such a big part of that poem, but it is, it is a very equally shared 
text of a poem between between Tatiana and and Onyegin. And I think the opera is 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 very well very equally shared. It isn't Tatiana's story, and I don't think it's more sympathetic to her than it is to Onyegin. But um, you, you'll find that out tonight if you're going to see it tonight. What, what do you think? For all that, surely the emotional heart of the piece, the, the moment when you peer both into the abyss of one's own darkest thoughts, but also uh, identify with Tatiana is the letter scene. This is where we're at the kind of centre of, mm, of things, isn't mm, it? Mm, mm, absolutely, and only 30 minutes into, into, the, into the piece. I mean, I think Act One is, is, is an extraordinary challenge because there's, there's 30 minutes of getting to know the, 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 a day on, in the life of the Larin estate. Um, and then we have to know her enough and mind enough that we then are delight in being with her for 22 minutes of that letter scene. And that's, that's a huge challenge. And I, I, think, I think that's one that Amanda has risen to completely. I mean, she sings very, very little in Act One, Scene One. But every, every moment that she has in, in her silence, we have to, as an audience, be, be locked into. Um, that, that, that's, that's hard. But also, it always makes me think just how extraordinarily uh, prepared to take a risk Tchaikovsky was to put that scene there. As you say, effectively, 30 minutes into the opera. You know, I mean, you ask yourself afterwards, if you don't know this piece well, uh, or for the first time, where do you go emotionally after that? And I think you also ask yourself, actually, um, if you're coming to this for the first time and it's in Russian, do you, do, 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 do you really travel easily with those 20 minutes while you're reading 20 minutes of surtitles? And um, in praise of the English National Opera, which I'd now like to speak about, I do think it's fantastic that you're witnessing this in English. I, I, I can't say how important that is, really. Um, it's converted me, this experience, to opera in English. And although I've worked here a fair bit, I, I've often worked on operas written in English, and Britain being one of those composers, or, or Messiah. But, I mean, this is, it's very, very exciting to have, to have this in English, and possibly quite necessary, actually, for somebody coming for the first time. Yeah. The, the, the construction of the piece always seems to me to be miraculous because it parallels characters, it parallels events. I mean, I was just thinking that, for example, in, 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 in early on in the opera, we have Monsieur Triquet's Little Country Wars, and then we have that staggering, grand, formal public polonaise at the end. And I wonder how, yeah. as a director, you respond to all this, this shaping within the piece, these parallels. Um. Well, you, you, you're, you're more than anything aware of the challenge of making the, the, the country life versus St. Petersburg's grandeur. Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think a difficult thing with this piece, not, it's, not, it's not really a question of what happens when you get to the Larina Ball, but how in Act One you can really describe the, the incredibly provincial nature of that, of that place and its muddiness come a certain moment in the year, not the moment we're witnessing it, but, but it's complete isolation. It's utterly wrapped around itself. It's, it's, it's miles and miles from anywhere. How you get that sense and how then... I was very perplexed, really, as Martin will tell you, but the, the tremendous music that gives us the, the Larina Ball has a scale to it and, indeed almost, I felt, a grandeur to it. And I thought, well, this is a huge problem for me because I've got to make the most provincial ball. <laughs> this has got to be a ball that you're really glad you weren't invited to, <laughs> but you're terribly charmed by. And, I mean, I suppose little by little we just built that on, on, on layers of, of detail and quirkiness and 
people falling asleep in corners or the cook leading the waltz or, you know, all of that delightful stuff that's, that's there or kids putting on a little play, which they do at the start. Um, St. Petersburg becomes easy after that, really. But certain lack of detail in grandeur, maybe, sometimes. <laughs> Deborah, the detail is absolutely wonderful. And, 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 I mean, you choose that little moment in the, in the, in the Larian Bowl where, where suddenly the cook is leading and all the servants suddenly get caught up in what should be, you know, the upstairs, not downstairs. Well, I mean, how... Had you worked all this detail out in immense care before you started, or did it emerge for you as you were working? There's people in there to tell you the truth about that. Um, my your version, My your assistant's version. laughing, and Tom. Um, I, I don't work things out really, really in advance so very much. I mean, I, I'd certainly worked with Tom Pye in advance, and we, um, we had to work to build, to build this world and make a set, which Tom will talk about that process. But um, you, 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 you can't work out everything in advance. You can't work out... You know, the a rehearsal room is about the, the the moment. It's about it's about you know, the chemical explosion within the moment. You know, you can plan for it, but you can't make it happen. You can't force that moment of invention. So what you can do is just try and inspire the room and try and urge a, a group to greater and greater invention and wilder and wilder ideas. But of course, a chorus comes to you. You know, not so very often. I mean, the chorus. I don't know how many, forget how many sessions we had in all, but you want that chorus, of course, to be as detailed as the principles. You've had the principles for six weeks. You've had the chorus for what, eight to 12 sessions. And it is the mark of a great chorus, and I think the NO's chorus is, is one such, that you can give them a note, and as a group of 68, to a, to a, to a creature, they will act on that note immediately. And that's, that's remarkable, but... You have to be very prepared for those rehearsals. You have to be awake those mornings. You have to be ready to, to go fast. Yeah. You, you've moved the date from Pushkin's own period to the period in which Tchaikovsky wrote the opera, to the middle of the 19th century, well, towards the end. That was a very conscious decision, obviously. Why, why did you want to move it? Um, there's, there's, there's strong reasons, and there's what would sound to you very weak reasons, I think. Uh, I'll start with the weak reason. I, I find the, the period, because we're dealing in costume here, I mean, the, the, the earlier period, the 1840 period, um, pretty alienating in terms of costume. I, I think it comes with a certain degree of opera cliché attached to it, I have to say. And there's something about the shape of the 1840s, those very high collars for the men in the duel, and the shape of the women's clothes that... Some may love, but actually I think do roll in the opera cliché. And I thought that it was important that we didn't do that. Um, I also think you can move it as late as 1890 with great ease. Um, I think all of us have an identification with 1890 much more than we do 1840 because we've all got or had relatives that spanned that. So our grandmothers in a way, bridge, bridge us. You know that people very rarely see ghosts, you know, from the 16th or 17th or 18th century. They see a lot of 19th century ghosts, you know. The amount of viewings of ghosts are actually very often within our own span of historical time, you know. We see our grandmothers. And um, I think, I, I thought that would help, to be honest. But, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about, about the period we put this in. I have to tell you, I don't think it matters. 
I think the difficulty with putting on this opera is you have to make a choice. So you have to choose whether you're going to do it in 1840, 1890, or even contemporary. You know, you have to make that choice very early. I think the excitement of this piece has very, very little to do with that. It may be a door in. It may delight people. It's visually gorgeous. It's, it's, it's thrilling to look at, but it isn't the point of the evening. The point of the evening is to release the, 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 the emotional heartbeat of this piece, and, and you simply have to find your own way to do that. Um, it doesn't, it nearly doesn't matter. But it is drawing on real situation, and he is, he's asking that of us, I think. And I mean, Tom and I agonized about this. It was very, very difficult. We didn't want to put it in an abstract world. I didn't, because I wanted the I wanted the singers to be able to draw on something very, very real to fire their own imagination. So I did want real doors and real floors, and I didn't want to abstract it. But it nearly doesn't matter. Deborah, I know you're going to stay with us, and there'll be a chance for the audience to ask questions later. But in the meantime, thank you very much indeed. Very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have some music next. Um, would you please welcome Jonathan Stoughton, who covers the role of Lenski in this production, and Martin Fitzpatrick, and they're going to perform for us Lenski's aria to his fiancée, Olga. Ah, how I love you, how I love you, Olga. Please welcome the musicians. That wild emotion Which only poets' hearts can feel Each day such fantasies pursue me I feel such passion rushing through me Such sadness only you can hear The pain of love was quite unknown a child I was when first I saw you And I was happy to adore you To dote on you and you alone In games and laughter here together We made a bond which lasts forever Feel this ecstasy and torment I'm in love with you Yes, in love with you And all the hours that we must spend apart Will only strengthen my fond heart And all the noisy world is with us everywhere We have a love that only we can share. 
Jonathan, Martin, thank you both very much. Jonathan, you're, I'm now going to bully you by asking you questions. Tell us a little bit about how you see Lenski. Who is Lenski? Right, uh, Lenski, I see him as a, he's a passionate young man. I believe he's been away to study, certainly in Pushkin, to study works of, uh, say, Goethe. And I can sort of see a lot of, say, Werther or someone like that in his persona. And he's... Um, you know, his, his calling now is to be a poet. He's a man of extremes. He has um, fixed on Olga Larina to, as, a, as to be his muse. And, um, Mistaken. <laughs> yes, which, <laughs> which doesn't go well. And uh, Eugene Onyegin has become his closest friend. Um, There's a temptation, perhaps, to think about Lenski sometimes simply as being, you know, in his role in the piece as Lenski's, as, as Onyegin's best friend. That's unfair. We, absolutely. Where he's the sort of antithesis of, uh, of, of Onyegin. I mean, they, they're drawn to each other, it, not just through circumstance, partly because, you know, there's no one else around, really, but also because uh, Lenski's... I mean, Lenski's character is infectious and... Um, uh, Onyegin can see that in him, all his youthful exuberance, enthusiasm and zest for life that uh, he no longer sort of possesses, but sort of wishes he does. And I think Lenski is, um, you know, is attracted by the worldliness and uh, sophistication of, of Onyegin, who is a little bit older as well. There's a real so, sense, isn't it, that Lenski belongs, particularly in Act One, um, to the world, to this world, and he kind of fits in, he finds his place, unlike, unlike Onyegin, who is outside it. Yes, I think he, I think he too is, um, he's also looking for excitement everywhere, and I think Onyegin provides that for him too. They spend an awful lot of time together. I, um, Lenski just will always make the best of any situation, mm. I think. Mm. Do you think he really loves Olga, or does he simply want Olga to be the object of an idea called love? I mean, is, he the po is, she, is she, as you suggest, just the poet's muse? And is that the problem, that yes. Onyegin doesn't simply flirt with Olga, he tries to steal the muse? He tried, well, he's betrayed by... I mean, he's a, he's a very intense young man, and I think he's invested so much into Olga and Onyegin too, and they both, you know, parade in front of him um, um, their, their disloyalty mm. and this tips him over the edge. I often wonder whether with Lenski everybody who knows the opera is waiting for the extraordinary beautiful little aria before the jewel. Yes. Um, is that a problem with, with singing this role that you know half the people out there on the other side of the footlights are waiting for that one moment? I, I think they... Well, I, I, Think they might feel they are, but when they came to the show, they would find. I mean, Lenski, Lenski's music is sort of reflects his character. It's all extremes and highly passionate, and there's there's nothing. Um, it's, it's certainly not an easy ride until you uh, sing the second act aria. And actually, the the, the journey to there is incredibly mm -hmm. exciting. The mm -hmm. the ball scene, the arguments, the um, the. The, the final betrayal as he perceives it and then and then the challenge a, a, a great a, a, a real meaty stuff to get into I think you better stop before the lumps in throats get too big and <laughs> what are you going to sing for us what are you and Martin going to do next well, I'm first? actually going to sing the uh, second <laughs> 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 handkerchiefs allowed ladies and gentlemen <laughs>
Yes, have some more. His tragedy is that his real muse probably he missed, isn't it? I mean, there's a very good muse sitting there all the time called yes. Tatiana. That's the yes. sad thing, isn't it? Yes, Olga, 
Thank you both, Jonathan Sutton and Martin Fitzpatrick. Uh, no more will I see in the spiritual Lenski's aria from Act Two. Now, I'm going to persuade Martin to join us, if I may. Come and find a corner of the microphone. Martin, I was going to ask you, really, a very simple question to begin with. Um, how demanding is the music that Tchaikovsky writes for his singers? Um, well, as Deborah mentioned, th these are young people in the first flushes of sexuality, as it were, and uh, I think the biggest challenge is, is to find people who look the part but have voices that can overcome a mighty Tchaikovsky orchestra. So that's the biggest challenge, to find people who are believable in that way and can still deliver the parts we way, the way we want. When you listen to the score, when you look at the score, is there something distinctive about, about what Tchaikovsky writes for this piece? Um, what I find is distinctive is that it's true to his great ballet scores and his great symphonies um, and yet is, is intrinsically an opera. So, so there are elements, I mean, sort of the fate motif from the fourth symphony is in there and, and, and the dance music that he brings the, to, to the ballets is in there. So the, it, it, he brings what he knows and loves from, from other disciplines into the opera. And is there a kind of an obvious sense in which, at the very beginning, that we know musically what everything's going to develop out of? I mean, is there a sense in which the first five minutes really tell us the whole of the musical journey we're going to take? Um, not the whole of it. I mean, he's certainly not into leitmotiv Salah Wagner, but um, the, the 
introduction has a figure um, that that per certainly permeates the first act, um, it, and it, um, it, as as you'll see, without giving away Deborah's first tableau, it, um, you know, it's about Tatiana, and 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 certainly this figure permeates Act One and sort of then disappears, uh, um, uh, sort of uh, as her daydreams and fantasies become realities and possibly realities that she doesn't want to have as her realities. You, you talked a moment ago about, about how he brings to this piece all the things that he also brings to the great three-act ballets. And I wonder just how important dance is within the piece in terms of dance rhythms and so forth. Uh, well, they're, they're certainly there. I mean, um, uh, the, the two big scenes, Act 2, Scene 1, as uh, Deborah was saying, is Larina's Ball, and Act 3, Scene 1, is, is in St. Petersburg. Um, both of them have two big dances in them. The uh, waltz, uh, which the chorus sing over the top at the beginning of Act 2, Scene 1, and then they're invited to dance a cotillon, although he calls it a mazurka. Um, uh, but but actually, the most intriguing part of Act Two, Scene One, I think, is just after that, where he sort of has the contradance in the background, and and it's the first bicker that Johnny mentioned between uh, Lensky and Onyegin, which is over the top of what is clearly a dance rhythm. And um, in in the cover rehearsals where I've been working with Johnny. Uh, uh, I, I, I call it a tango, and it's not because I want them to dance a tango, but it's sort of that, that inbuilt tension a, a, about it, the two people sort of very close and sort of very clipped and, you know, not quite, not quite revealing, the, but there's a huge inner passion inside them. And then, and then with um, the act, the act three scene one is more f formulaic in that ni neither of the dances actually have any singing over the top of them. But, but in act two scene one, the great Laren of Ball scene is... It's it's so integrated that he's got he's got the drama moving while the, while there are dance rhythms underneath. If there were people who would like to ask questions of Martin and Jonathan at this stage, um, indeed, and Deborah too, though we shall be more opportunities <laughs> later. Um, do please put your hands up. There's a roving microphone, so if you'd like to catch my eye with a question, I think we're going to. Oh, in the front row here. Yes, the microphone is coming. I was interested in, in Deborah's comment about opera in English. I've always been uh, a believer in it since the 50s in, when you were at uh, Sounds as Wells. Uh, is this, uh, I knew the aria, and I learnt it uh, in Swedish, the first one I heard, uh, you'll see Bjorling singing it. Um, uh, is this a special translation that uh, has been done to capture the spirit and, and the verse of Pushkin, but to bring it into language we understand today. It's a, would you like to? Yes, but I, I'd like you to as well. It's a, it's a new translation. It's um, Martin Picard, who works at Opera North. It's his, it's his translation. And um, I, I thought, it, I was very eager that we had a new translation. And um, I, think, uh, I think it's a terribly good translation. I think it's ex it, it happens to be extremely true to, um, to the original, which I think is very important, and um, it doesn't have such a strong rhyme structure as 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 existing translations. But no, I'm going to disagree. He's with going that to one. Dis I'm going to disagree with that one. I mean, um, uh, uh, when so Deb <laughs> when Deborah um, and and Ed as well said, well, it's time That's for a Ed new Gardner, Ed Gardner. Yes. Um, 
uh, said it's time to look for a new translation. And, and Martin had actually translated some of Onyegin for, I think it was a book of Russian arias printed by Faber, which was what, what we presented to um, Deborah and Ed. And, and um, uh, they liked it. And, and Martin was very keen... He, he, as as we're all saying, that a lot of this is affected by the Pushkin, and and he was keen to go further into the the rhyme structure and say this is intrinsic to 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 the piece um, than than any of the translations that or the the one translation that that uh, Eno has used before. So he he was very keen to maintain the Pushkin rhyme structure, and and it's not. Where, where he's clever, as, as Deborah's implying, is, is that he's, he's not locked into Gilbert and Sullivan witty rhymes. There, there, there are half rhymes in there, and, 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 and also his great skill in, in concealing the rhymes. So, so, but, but he's very true to the verse structure of the Pushkin in, in, what, in the way he's translated it. Do we have another question? Another question. Well, well let's, let's move on. Um, behind me, you can see... Oh. You'll need to wait for the microphone. She's coming. Um, no, I just wanted to know the translation of Pushkin's original poem uh, that you admire so much. Who did it? This is Deborah. I think it's question. Oh, no, I heard the question. Oh, right. <laughs> I, th I think you may have to wait for an answer <laughs> to that question. I'm panicking. Um, can, can see we... me after and I'll tell you. Well... <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you can see behind me on the screen, if I don't stand in the way too much, you can actually see stills taken from the production. So it's a kind of little preview of what we're going to see. Um, when Tchaikovsky had finished the opera, he was deeply worried whether the public would accept it um, because it lacked conventional scene changes. Um, and he believed, therefore, that the performance uh, would require maximum simplicity and sincerity, are his own words. With this in mind, curiously, he entrusted the first production to the students of the Moscow Conservatory where he was teaching. And the premiere took place on the 29th of March 1879 at the Marley Theatre in Moscow, conducted by Nikolai Rubinstein. Two years later came the first performance at the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow, and the first performance outside Russia took place on December the 6th, 1888, in Prague, where it was conducted by Tchaikovsky himself. Interestingly, the first performance in Germany, which was in 1892, was conducted by Gustav Mahler and the, and the composer's presence. It was at Hamburg, and Tchaikovsky was applauded after each scene and received curtain calls at the end. And he attributed success of the production to Mahler, who he described as, I quote, not some average sort, but simply a genius burning with a desire to conduct. Ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome the last of our guests this evening? It's the designer of the sets for this production of Eugene Onegin, Tom Pye. <laughs> Tom, um, at what stage did you get involved in this production? I think it was about uh, summer of 2010, so about 15 months ago. And did you have a very specific brief from Deborah beside you as to what you wanted to do? <laughs> a bit unfair asking you that. <laughs> it is a slightly. Um, not terribly specific. Uh, there were a few um, strong opinions that Deborah had from, uh, from seeing other productions. And um, uh, one of those was the Chekhovian one that uh, she spoke about earlier, that uh, I wanting a sort of need for the singers to have real places, real rooms, places they could really properly inhabit. And I, I did understand that. Um, looking at we, one of our earliest uh, weekends together was on, spent on YouTube, 
<laughs> looking at other productions, and it became very, I, I could understand that very quickly. There seems, seems throughout it to be a, a very important idea of the passing of the seasons through the piece, where you can said to visualise the sense in which we, we travel through, in effect, from kind of harvest to winter to yeah. so forth. I think it's the main way that uh, we, we can create atmosphere, um, particularly for Act One. That's very much about the harvest and the sunshine and the, and the cool barn as somewhere to go and retreat to. And then um, winter becomes uh, a metaphor and it gets chillier and icier and more formal as we go. So I think the seasons are very important um, opposites for the piece. The Larian estate in your production is very different, I think, from any Larian estate we've ever seen. Instead of the usual kind of often green and white painted Duchess style house, we're in the middle of a barn with huge doors at the back. Now, did that idea come to you very quickly? Sadly not, no. <laughs> it came very late. It was, it was actually the last thing that came. Um, we, probably by about uh, this time last year, we'd, we'd found St. Petersburg and the Larian ball, the jewel, but we hadn't really found out one, and we went to Russia um, on a research trip. And I don't think I had any sense of the opposites of St. Petersburg to Moscow. And I think in my head I had something more sort of Jane Austen about the country to the city, which is completely the opposite. It's far more isolated and more rustic, more rural, and uh, very opposing societies. So it was with that in my mind um, from that research trip that we came back and we were still struggling with that one and, and the, the structure of it uh, that, that gave us that idea of the barn. And, and with those huge doors at the back of the arm, there's a sense of both welcoming the country in but also knowing you've got to keep this vast place outside too? Yes, yes, and it's, it becomes a sort of aperture that we can, we can use in the, in the three different scenes in different ways to create different spaces. What, what do you see as the, the relationship between this, this rustic barn and the extraordinary, I don't want to give away too much, but the extraordinary St. Petersburg you create for Act Three? What should we understand as being the journey, if you like, that Tatiana takes from the countryside to Petersburg? I, th I think that's exactly why, why we went for that uh, kind of opposites, really, is, is to get the biggest journey, the biggest sense of journey that she takes so that we could get something very, very opposite, something very formal and a little chilly towards the end, and something very detailed and maybe cluttered and uh, dusty and... Yes, yeah, the farm, yeah. And it is a world that gets colder and colder, doesn't it, as we, as we, as we move? Till the end, you almost feel your fingers are frozen at the end of this piece. Good. <laughs> you can see what an enthusiast I know you didn't do the costumes. That was Chloe Obolensky. But did you have a, a, a role in, in, in the costumes for the piece? Uh, not massively. I mean, Chloe kind of works in her, own, in her own sphere. I mean, what she does is so beautiful. But um, we did talk about palette a lot. She was very aware of what I was doing and uh, the materials I chose. And as I came up and settled on palettes for each scene, I spent a long time with Chloe explaining those. So everything she did was in relationship to me, but I can't say how I was. And, um, and, and Deborah was saying that in the end, the, the actual date where you set the piece is, is, is a movable feast from 1870 to 1890. Was that something you also felt as, as you did the research? Well, for me, yeah, it didn't really uh, affect the way I approached. Um, again, from what I saw in Russia, it was all neoclassical. It was all slightly earlier. So uh, it was quite nice that the costumes were later, but it didn't really affect what, uh, what the architecture would have been. I was, I was somewhere quite a bit earlier. 
Ladies and gentlemen, there's another brief opportunity before we have to go downstairs and get ready for the evening to ask questions. If anyone would like to ask a question of any of the people who've been generous enough to give us their time this evening, do please. We have one question over there. If you could wait for the microphone to find you, that would be splendid. I just want to go back to what I interpreted from Deborah, almost a dismissal of the importance of the, of the period that you mm -hmm. stage the opera in. Because it seems to me that if it's mid-19th century, the life can go on. You know, we, we aren't forced to think of them as terribly different. You can concentrate on the characters without the circumstances around them. If it's early 20th century, you're kind of into Goddard-Amarong no, no. territory. No, don't know? get me wrong. I, I think I, what, it's immensely important that you make a choice and you stick with it, and we've certainly stuck with it. I mean, don't, uh, d there's no question of that. I mean, our, our, our date is 1890, in that when you get to, to St. Petersburg, you'll see that the height of fashion of those in the St. Petersburg Ball is 1890. But the country's old-fashioned, and the people in the country are wearing, if you, the precision of this is, is, is very accurate in Chloe Obolensky's mind. I mean, the nurse is wearing a, a, a costume that is probably, was probably made in 1832 and she's had for a long time, and it's post-1840, and she's wearing it. So we're very, very precise. What, I'm, what, I, what I was alluding to, really, is that there's a great deal of critical interest in exactly the date that we've put it. And, I, and truly, I, I, I don't think, once the choice is made, that this is terribly important. I think even the composer wouldn't mind if you put it in a white box. What he's really interested in is the releasing of those extraordinary explosive characters and the emotions between them. I don't think he's very fascinated in it being a historic drama. I think Pushkin is extremely interested in the date that he's put it in, and the more you read that poem, the more detail there is. But Tchaikovsky really is, 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 in, is in the world of, 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 of feeling passions and high emotions. What he's given us is a terrible challenge if you're asked to present this work in a big opera house, which is a luxury and a, a great excitement. But the problem is that Tom and I then have to engage very precisely on where and how we will realize it scenically. And I think if I ever had my time again with this opera, the, and I'm thrilled with this production, but the only other way that I would be interested to engage with it is if I was invited to do it in a very small house, say something like the Opera Comique in Paris, where I think you would use the very fabric of the building and you would not concern yourself with solving those seven lyrical scenes visually and individually. It is a, it is a profound challenge because he has in his head, in his mind's eye, such accuracy. I mean, the more you study those, those estates and, and the views of them, you can see exactly where he was as he was creating this unbelievable uh, emotional tapestry through the music. You know, he sets at one scene three in a lilac grove in the garden. You know, you cannot ask us to do that now. But I know exactly what he was thinking. So you have to find another way of releasing that incredibly heady emotion that comes with a lilac grove in a garden. You know, he was thinking film. And I, I think that what we have done here is it's not a throwback production to 19th century theater making. It is actually towards a film, really. We're very close to the edge of film in what, in what, in what we're offering. And uh, in, in that way, I think it's very exciting and, 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 and actually, actually really quite new. I don't think it's a throwback to 19th century theater making at all, but 
this is um, it's 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 very very tricky scenically because I mean what we haven't got long enough but what what Tom's talking about in 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 the, in the case of Act One is that we did make a quite a quite a strong decision to put the whole of Act One into one set, thus giving you an incredibly condensed 70 minutes. So half of the opera lies in Act One, and we didn't want those scene changes to delay the evening at all. So some of them are 20 seconds, I think, between the first and second scene and 30 between the next. So you don't experience those scene changes at all. Thus, I think we win the right to two intervals, which I'm always against, but I think works in this case. And a long delay between the Larina ball and the duel, which is two and a half minutes, but I don't think you mind because the first 70 minutes is so tight. But structurally, it's a, it's a hell of a challenge um, to, to, to solve this scenic thing. But I'm not saying it doesn't matter what date you set in, it really does matter, but only in that a choice, a choice must be made. Do we have one more question? Yes, in the front row. I want to Hold on, would you like oh, to wait for the microphone? Oh, no one will hear you, apart from me. It will be very nice. Can I ask Toby Spence when you... Uh, uh, Jonathan, oh. sorry, I'm... Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm understudying or covering oh, of course, the... Uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Sorry. He's yeah. nearly Toby Spence. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nearly Toby Spence for Jonathan. Yes. When you, when you are engaged for a role, how much detail do you know about the production? I mean, is it sort of a total unknown or um, are you prepared for what's going to happen? Of the, the, of the, of the work, you should... Be very prepared. You should know, obviously, your role and and how it goes inside out. But a production generally, you you find out on the model showing on the uh, first day or um, when you arrive. So, and in my case, I'm uh, understudying. You know, I came in uh, what two two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and uh, and uh, they're very trusting out. singers. <laughs> well, that's the truth. Of it. And with good cause, as you shall see this evening. Yeah. So, I, do we have one more question, which I think might be our last? Yes? Could, could you hold on, hold on, wait till the microphone sprints to you? And this... do you I was just interested, do you change depending on, say you all meet and this is the set you're going to inhabit, do you then change, saying, I can't do that, Mr. Designer, I don't know the steps or the, it's too dark, or do you change it depending on the, the, what the cast think? Do we change the, 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 the design? The look of it, yeah. You know, I don't Ooh, like the set, it's um, too dark, it's too deep, I'm not comfy there, or I need a bigger doorway, or whatever. <laughs> I would always give a singer a bigger hallway. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the third show that I've worked with Deborah, and Deborah is one of the most flexible and versatile directors I know, and if a, if a singer gave her a good enough reason to give her the more space or more light, then she would take it. Oh, nice. oh. <laughs> I, 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 absolutely. Um, I think that's a, 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 a magnificent note to end on. Can I say thank you, first of all, to all of you for being here this evening, but above all, to four guests who've spent, given time to be with us, Tom Pye, Deborah Warner, and, of course, also to Marty Fitzpatrick and Jonathan Stoughton. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>